That's what God wants to do, even through his scripture this morning. Please open to Genesis chapter 2. I think that's the over, one of the overarching meanings of chapter 2, is to give us a glimpse, a glimpse of paradise. Uh, Paul Tripp is, is great. That's an author you should know and trust. In his book, Forever, Why You Can't Live Without It, he describes an experience that he had going camping. And he writes, I'm persu- persuaded that the whole purpose of camping is to make a person long for home. <laughs> On that first day in the woods, putting up the tent is exciting. But three days later, when the tent has an unpleasant odor, you can't explain, not so much. You love the taste of food cooked over an open flame, but three days later, you're tired of foraging for wood and irritated by how fast the wood burns. You're excited at the prospect of catching fish for dinner in the stream next to your campsite, but all you've snagged are roots on the bottom after three days. You're now four days in and your back hurts. There seems to be no more wood for foraging. And you look at what was once a cooler filled with ice and food and see the steaks that you had reserved gray floating in red liquid. Suddenly, you begin to think fondly of home. And I think that's what Yahweh is doing in chapter 2. Giving us a longing for home. This chapter is wedged between the excitement of creation and the drama of the fall. We have this chapter 2 that that, that just describes, pretty much just describes Eden. Really, it expands on the sixth day. And, and even more specifically, it expands on verses 26 through 30 on the first day. He gives us a picture of what the Garden of Eden looked like. Why? To give us a picture of paradise. To give us an understanding of what was ripped away from us at the fall. To give us a reference for our longing. Because unless you have an idea of what home is like, how can you really have a longing for, for it? How can our current situation be thrown in relief if we don't know what home was like? And so he inspired chapter 2 to be in our hands today. Look with me, starting in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had sent no rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being." Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, there was the tree of life. 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watered the garden flowing from Eden, and from there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onks are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris and runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took, took one of man's ribs and closed the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This begins a new section in Genesis. If you look at the first verse, it says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth. Through the inspiration of the Spirit, Moses was led to actually give 11 divisions to the book of Genesis to help organize the book in general. So you will read 10 more times, 11 in total, this is the account of, or these are the generations of. And it should mark to you that this is a new section, a new thought that God is saying something about. God has already told us about creation in general, and now here he wants to show us what paradise is really like. And the first thing that I think we can say about what paradise is really like is it is beautiful. Paradise is beautiful. We long for beauty, don't we? We long for beauty. It's deep in us, in the clothes we buy, in the furnishings we purchase, in the places we go on vacation. We look and seek out beauty. We never go to a store and we pick out a dress and we say, this dress is going to make me look plain. I'm going to purchase it. We never go to a furniture store and say, that green couch is going to be nauseating and totally wreck the decor. Or we don't go somewhere and plan and save and scrimp and go somewhere that is unappealing on vacation. No, we want to be surrounded by beauty. We're driven to beauty. We long for beauty. And Eden was beautiful. Eden was beautiful. The Russian philosopher Nicholas Berdyevs wrote, 
All beauty in the world is either a memory of the paradise or a prophecy of the transfigured world. I love that. It's either a memory of paradise or prophecy of transformation. And Yahweh wants us to have in our memory how gorgeous and beautiful Eden was. You can see it in verses 8 and 9 of our text where he planted a garden and the Lord made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, verse 9, trees that were pleasing for the eye and good for food. And then you go on in verses 11 and 12, we see that he took time out to describe that there was gold in the land and precious gems scattered about. So here we have the picture of this lush garden that is, is drop-dead gorgeous. And we have gold and precious stones scattered about. He's painting a beautiful picture for us, an attractive picture, one that we're drawn towards of lush gardens with water flowing throughout, constant, stunning, personal safari of animals that you can go up and touch. God wants his people to realize what the Garden of Eden was like, so much so that he provided a reminder for God's people throughout their history of what the Garden of Eden was like. We call those reminders the tabernacle, and the temple. If you take time out this Sabbath to go back and read Exodus 26 and following, you'll read about the description of what the tabernacle was supposed to look like, and, and it was covered with uh, purple and red cloths. It, was, it, was, uh, it had all the bars were overlaid with gold, and they hung these cloths. The cloths hung with bronze rings. I mean... The tabernacle in this, in this arid desert must have been stunning to look at. And then the, the temple, you can read about the temple in 1 Kings chapter 6, the temple that Solomon built. It was even more specific referencing the garden. You would walk in to the temple and on, on the sides of the walls were sculpted in, inlaid palm trees and open flowers in cherubim angels. What is God trying to convey here? The whole thing was overlaid with gold gleaming. And if you were one of the priests that could go into the holy place, not the holy of holies, the holy place, you got to see that there was a lamp stand there, right? That looked like a tree. It was to signify the tree of life standing right next to a table covered with gold that had the showbread on it. It was to represent the people of God. Tree of life, the people of God. This is, all these things were to cry out, remember. Remember the garden. Remember how it was. Don't forget. And it was... Exactly like that, except for one thing, wasn't it? The curtain. 
that thick cloth that hung in the holy place that separated out the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence hovered over the mercy seat. God's presence was there, but they were barred from God's presence by this curtain. Everything was to remind them of Eden except this. Every morning and every evening, the priest would go in to light the incense of prayer in that holy place and they would look at that curtain and remember what was ripped away from them. Every week, the priest would go in to change out the showbread, to put new bread on the table to signify the people of God and they would look at that curtain, they would glance over at that curtain and be reminded that they're barred from the presence of God. Eden all around them except for God. And there was, he did this to create a longing, a longing in his people for that thing that was missing. He actually put that curtain there to give them a longing for the promised seed to come for Christ. Matthew records when Christ gave up his spirit and died in Matthew 27. This this thick curtain was torn, as you know, from top to bottom. Thus symbolizing what Christ accomplished for his people on that day. That those who trust in his righteous life and not their own, who look to Christ's perfection and not their work, that those who see their sin so seriously that they should have died, that those who believe that they serve a living Savior, a resurrected Savior, they have access to God. That ripping and that access to God is actually true, not just symbolism. Hebrews 10, 19, and 20 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. We draw near to God with a sincere and a surety of faith. The curtain was placed there to give people, God's people a longing for Christ. Christ's body broken for you. Do those, those words bring anything to mind? Christ's body broken for you gives you communion with the God of the universe. His sacrifice allows you and me to celebrate communion, to celebrate access to God, to boldly approach the throne of God. If you're a believer sitting here today, I want you to know you have access to boldly go in to God's presence. People of God sitting here, you have boldly entered in to God's presence today. 
And that should over that should give you so much joy. You should have joy at hearing those words because generations and generations and generations longed for that. And Paul draws on that longing in 2 Corinthians 5 and talks about we still kind of long, don't we? Yes, we have access to God, but it's spiritual access. You know, uh, uh, Hebrews 11, faith not sight. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we groan, as he puts it, to be clothed in our heavenly dwelling. He is longing for the day when faith will become sight. Somebody here prayed that, that we are so looking forward to Christ coming back. That's the kind of people we should be. When our bodies will be renewed, when this world will be set right, will be corrected. And as our scripture reading tells us today, that we will see his face. Did you recognize that when you read it? That if you have put your faith in Christ, you will see God face to face. The spiritual presence replaced with the actual presence of God. The spiritual intimacy that we have now will be replaced with actual intimacy with God. Go home and read Revelation 22 again. It should stir up in you that longing for intimacy. And that's the second thing that God wants us to long for in chapter 2. A greater intimacy with him. A greater intimacy with him. A longing for perfect intimacy. I mean, we all long for more perfect relationships, right? We all long for more perfect relationships, right? Yes, we do. Sometimes you've got to verbalize it. You just can't sit there and look at me. We, we long for more perfect relationships. We long for more perfect relationships with our parents with our family, with our friends, with our spouse. Isn't that why we work on our marriages? Because our marriages are in a constant state of disrepair. Our relationships are in a constant state of entropy. Leonard Cohen calls marriage the hottest furnace of the spirit today. There's a young woman who three weeks into her marriage named Joanna, who called her minister in hysterics. Pastor, she cried, John and I had just had our first fight together. It was awful. I just don't know what to do. Pastor said, calm down, Joanna. This isn't nearly as bad as you think. Every marriage has its first fight. It's natural. Joanna said, I know, I know. But where am I going to hide the body? Seriously, all relationships are in a constant state of disrepair, aren't they? Because we're terribly selfish. We're terribly sinful. And it's all about us. And we continually mess up our relationships. And here, God gives us a picture, actually two pictures of perfect relationship. The first picture he paints for us here is a perfect relationship with others. Eden, 
You were in perfect relationship with others. Verses 18 through 25 tell us about how, how God saw that it is not good for man to be alone. He needs relationship. Man needs relationship. Part of God's image in us is our deep desire for intimacy. In that way, we're reflecting the Trinity who are perfectly intimate and perfectly in relationship with each other. It's part of our, our image of God. No animals have this desire. No animals have this desire, guys. Yeah, beavers and wolves mate for life, but they're not seeking to really know the other wolf. Gorillas care for each other, but no animal desires the deep intimacy that we do. So God creates Eve for Adam, a perfect companion, a perfect counterpart. And Adam is overjoyed when he meets her. Did you hear that? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is a person I can go deep with. There's real delight in Adam's voice. And so they come together in marriage. And then verse 25 lets us see what this, it describes their relationship and it describes perfect relationships. They were naked and unashamed. Verse 25. Absolutely no issues between Adam and Eve. None. Nothing hidden. Nakedness. They were who they were totally in front of the other person. And don't we long for that? Well, for some of us, it terrifies us, right? That's our flesh reacting. I get that. But don't we long for that kind of intimacy? That kind of depth? That kind of know and to be known? No envy or bitterness or anger or resentment in the relationship? No selfish competition or foolish pride. Nothing hidden. No protection needed. No defense. We talked about how we defend ourselves so much in Sunday school. No defense needed. No desire to defend. Ken Hughes commenting on this says, All that they, Adam and Eve, all that they were, was there for the other to see and love. Total openness, total transparency, total intimacy, no hidden terror of being hurt. Isn't that terror of being hurt is what keeps us many times of, of not going deep in relationships, whether it be spouse, friend, or church. There's a terror. I can't tell you how many times, <coughs> excuse me, how many times when I'm encouraging people to dive deep into body life, to, to really be, treat us each other like family and live open and transparent lives, they say, you know, I'm just afraid of being hurt. Or I've been hurt before. I'm not going to experience that again. Terror of being hurt is what hinders our relationships. But just to give you an encouragement and a challenge. The reason that we're called to be so intimate as a body of Christ, as a church, is so that we can mirror 
what it's like to live in that freedom of nakedness and unashamed to the world. Those relationships are different up on the high road. That's what should be seen. We long for that total openness and trust in our relationships. And here Yahweh wants to create that longing for perfect intimacy between each other. But secondly, and and more importantly, I think, he wants to create that longing for intimacy between himself and us. That's what verse 25 is also saying about our relationship with God. In the Garden of Eden, we were naked and unashamed before him. We'll circle back to this in our next chapter after the fall. What's the first thing Adam and Eve do after sin enters the world and we become self-conscious? Cover ourselves up. And it's been that way since that day until this very minute sitting in that pew. But at that point, man did not have any barriers to God. There was no thick, heavy curtain separating us from the presence of God. We were in perfect, intimate relationship with the lover of our souls. That's what verse 25 says about their relationship with God. Even the name of God, if you look at verse 4, it says, Then the Lord God... If you're a Bible marker, just kind of underline that word, Lord. It's all capitalized, unlike, it's unlike any other word that's printed in your Bible. That L-O-R-D capitalized is the tetragrammaton. It's the four letters of God's name that shall not be spoken, shall not be, in, shall not be given vowels. It was so holy. But it was also, and you have to know this, it was the name that God gives himself It was a relational name. It was a covenantal name. It was a name that, that by very definition, says, I want relationship with you. And so he calls himself Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, 20 times in this chapter. He wants them and us to know that he is the God of creation, Elohim, chapter 1. But he's also God of intimacy in relationship, chapter 2. God wants us to see here that he was an intimate, dedicated, covenantal God. And he wanted that relationship with man. And there was nothing between them, naked and unashamed. He walked with them and loved them openly. And we walked with him and loved him openly. C.S. Lewis describes it as God came first in their love and in their thoughts and without painful effort. That was the description of us towards God. God came first in their thoughts and without painful effort. Imagine that. That all the discipline that it takes, all the, all the rigor that it takes, and it does take discipline to be in relationship with God, to be walking with him, to be in his word, right? I mean, we're a church about the word here. Be in the word. And that takes discipline because we don't want to, right? To be in prayer. How hard is it to stay in prayer for any more than really, honestly, 25 seconds? It's hard. 
It's a result of the fall. Not in Eden. There was no need for disciplined devotion. Loving God was natural and effortless as breathing. We ran towards him in the garden, not away from him. We desired him to gaze at us. When now, oh, pastor, don't make me pray the prayer of Psalm 139. Search me, O God. That's a terrifying prayer. We long to hear him speak to us, to teach us, to guide us in the garden. And now we struggle to even open the Bible once a day. Here God wants us to get a whiff, a whiff of the deep and perfect intimacy that we had with him. Why? Well, if you've ever been to the, I'm sad to say, dwindling mall, you've been there when they have made cinnamon buns, right? We've all kind of had this experience. I'm using cinnamon buns. Where you're walking in the, in the, in the mall and all of a sudden you, you pass through this amazing smell of butter and cinnamon. You weren't thinking about it before, but you pass into it and all of a sudden, that's all that's on your mind. Uh, where is it? Where can I get one? Are they fresh? I hope they're fresh. They smell fresh. Honey, let's go to the left here because the scent is stronger down here. It's all you desire. You want more. And that's what Jesus Christ offers every single person here. You get a whiff of paradise. And you want more. And Jesus says, I can give you more. More of the relationship that we see here in the garden. Intimacy with God without terror. You realize that God will never leave you. He will never hurt you. Ever. He will always have your best in mind. Always. Always. Jesus offers the love of God with no strings attached. No strings. I love you. No strings through Jesus. Salvation is a one-way gift, giver to receiver. Jesus offers the acceptance of God without end. Acceptance. That's what we all desire, don't we? Just accept me. You know? There's nothing you can do that will make God love you more nor less. We struggle with that, as we saw in Sunday school. Jesus offers permanent adoption into the family of God. You're no longer an orphan. You don't have to be scared that you're going to be taken back to the orphanage. He will never take you back. As believers, God wants to encourage you with this whiff of paradise. If you're sitting here, and I hope you are, you're sitting here and and you're, you're not a Christian, you don't call yourself a Christian, You're welcome here every single day 
of the week and twice on Sundays if we had an evening service. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, you just got a whiff of what it could be. And I hope that you follow it. You just got a whiff of the abundant life. And that is what God wants us to long for, is abundant life. And that's our third point this morning. Abundant life. That's what the garden represents. Jane Garmey of the Wall Street Journal recently wrote a piece on Kenneth Helfand, a professor of landscape architecture at the University of Oregon. A little while ago, Helfand purchased an old picture from a flea market. It depicted a scene of World War I, the French military trenches. After a great deal of research, he discovered that gardens were often created in times of war. He found pictures of them flanking the Western Front in World War I, Jewish ghettos during World War II, German POW camps, and war-torn Sarajevo. Why does man create gardens in the middle of chaos? Was his question. He concluded, because gardens symbolize life. In the most difficult of circumstances, gardens symbolize life. And that's certainly what the Garden of Eden is there to represent to us in chapter 2. Eden was lush with life, plant and animal life, abundant water supply, humanity. And at the center was the tree of life, right? The tree of life. Nancy Guthrie, commenting on this, says, Adam and Eve lived in a garden paradise with every need provided for. And in the middle was the tree of life. The tree of life offered more than just unending life. She writes, to eat of it was to enjoy a life that was not only quantitatively different, but qualitatively different. It was a life enjoying rest and provision of God. In other words, the garden represents life in resting in God's provision. Life resting in God's provision. That's what we seek, right? I just want to rest in God's provision. I don't want to worry. I don't want to fear. I just... Wouldn't it be nice to just rest in what God has provided and just be totally content? Adam and Eve did. There was no fear, no worry. Total confidence in God's provision. Total confidence in God's provision. The Huffington Post recently ran a short article about fear. And it featured a series of comics next to each other depicting common fears of children and common fears of adults. First one depicted childhood fear, doctors. Adult fear, doctor bills. Childhood fear, bad dreams. Adult fear, unfulfilled dreams. Childhood fear, strangers. Adult fear, crippling social anxiety. Childhood fear, clowns. 
adulthood fear? Clowns. The article notes that though the fear of children are often discounted as irrational or silly by us older and wiser adults, they're often not far from our own fears. But the tree of life in the garden makes us long for a life that is qualitatively different, a life of resting in the provision of God. Wouldn't that be great? Knowing that God always had your back, no matter, I mean, really knowing, not just saying it. You know, we say those things as Christians. God's got my back. Really? Do you never worry? Do you never fear? If you do either of those, don't say that ever again. It's true, but you're not living it. You don't really believe it. That's what the garden, that's how how different the garden was. They lived it. He always came through and provided. Jesus, in his great shepherd discourse in John 10, told the people, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come so that they will have life. And the NIV says, and have it to the full. I like the more literal translation. And have it abundantly. You will have life abundantly. Jesus came to restore the abundant rest and provision that we lost. First, by removing the greatest terror of each and every one of our hearts. The greatest terror. And that is death. That's the greatest terror. And through his life, substitutionary death, and resurrection, proving that he did indeed have victory over Satan, sin, and death, that is guaranteed through Jesus Christ. But Jesus also came to restore a practical, abundant life. Because we say that, and we say death death is taken care of, but... But, you know, I still have fear and anxiety in a bunch of different categories. Children. Next fuel bill. Cars starting to break down and I have no savings. You want to add anything to the list? I'm sure you have your own list. It's a... Jesus came to give us a day-to-day application of this abundant life. And I think Paul addresses that in Philippians 4 when he says, I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or in want. Okay, Paul, what's the secret? Can you just tell us? No, he's found the secret. And he tells us in verse 13, I can do everything through him, Christ, who gives me strength. This is not a promise to give you stuff. You know, if you give your life to Christ, that that your life will become in order and everything will be taken care of. No. I'm here to tell you that that doesn't happen. It's not a promise to bless you with ease, but a promise to strengthen your trust and your rest in Him. See, as you learn to trust Jesus more... We have a theological word for that. It's called sanctification. You learn to trust Jesus more. 
Abundant life, you come to understand, does not mean ease, does not mean, oh, he'll pay the bill. No, that's the prosperity gospel. And when you hear that preached, turn off your television, radio, or podcast. I'm serious, dead serious. It is poison, and your flesh is drawn to it. Turn it off. Now, what the gospel does, as you trust in Christ more, you realize, you begin to realize that, for example, he actually loves your children more than you do. Every night when I put my kids to bed, done this since they were a little one, I give them a blessing, and then I say, Mommy and Daddy love you very much. And I've said it so often that they now repeat to me, but God loves me more. That's true. That's true. He loves them more. He will take care of them. And as you learn to trust Christ, you learn to trust that even the difficulty they go through, God's actually got them. Hard to live, easy to say, hard to live. means whatever your circumstances in life, whether well-fed or hungry, plenty or want, Christ is enough. That's what you start learning. That the, that, that terror or the worry that you have about how to get through this life financially gives way a little bit and starts washing away as what Tulian Vigian wrote in his book, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That is true. Now, this doesn't mean that you stop caring for your kids or you stop working and resting in a wrong way. No, it means that those things are be, begin to be placed in the proper category in your life. It means that when you're given more, you're not captured by it. It means that if you, there is less, you become completely satisfied with less. That's what Paul is saying. In other words, you actually rest. What is happening is that Christ, through the power of the gospel, actually changes your heart. And you actually become content with less, if less is the trajectory. He changes your heart so you begin not coveting the things you don't have. He actually changes your desire. The gospel changes your heart so that you don't look at people who they are, what they have, and go deep down, oh, I really want that. He starts melting that desire, that envy, and that coveting. He changes your heart in such a drastic way that you're willing to be poured out like a drink offering for his kingdom. That's what Paul says at the end of his life. Are you willing to be poured out like a drink offering? Because you have your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, who is the tree of life.
Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Spirit, you do the hard work now. Change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.